This is TechSnap, episode 390. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was recorded on November 21st, 2018. My name is Wes, and joining me back from gallivanting around the globe, it's Mr. Chris Fisher. Hello, Wes. It's good to be back and solving problems this week in a WireGuard special. In fact, in spirit, Jim would be returning just a little bit as we get into WireGuard. And a big thank you to Jim. No kidding. He stood in last week and just a bang-up job. Did a great job. Now, Chris, if you're like me, over the years, you've had a ton of different VPN solutions, IPsec, PPTP, if you still live in the dark ages, and of course, the ubiquitous OpenVPN. Heck yeah. None of those are a ton of fun to use. And recently, there's been a new kid on the block. Enter WireGuard. Oh yeah, I've been seeing a lot about WireGuard. We've kind of discussed it back and forth on this show. But really, if you've been following the news, been following Linux development, or just a big fan of VPN and networking technology, you've probably been hearing WireGuard thrown around a lot. But I think there's confusion as to what it really is. Yeah, it's one of these technologies that's kind of in the middle of the stack, and you can use it for a lot of things, so it's, it might not be clear just what it is at its core. And really, at its core, all WireGuard does is create an interface from one computer to another. It doesn't let you access other computers on the other end, it doesn't forward all your traffic through the VPN server, or anything like that. Really, at your base configuration, it just sets up a new network on top that connects two IP addresses. This is some low-level stuff, and I think we need to do a TechSnap deep dive into WireGuard, and it's something that we're considering utilizing ourselves for our day-to-day operations, and we thought, well, geez, if we're looking into it, maybe it's time to talk about it for the audience, too. Well, it's probably best to start with some basics here, and if you've used OpenVPN, you're probably used to this whole user space VPN solution. You know, you get like a, a ton or a tap device provided by the kernel, and then the OpenVPN program that you run connects and talks to it. WireGuard, well, in its main form, it's a little bit different. And that's because the end goal is to be integrated into the Linux kernel. Yeah, obviously that'll give you some great performance. And to that end, certain Linux developers are quite interested in seeing that happen. Unfortunately, WireGuard didn't make it into the most recent kernel. That's right, you won't be seeing it in kernel 4.20. But the code continues to be worked on and improved upon And really, I mean, I think there's a lot of goodwill towards this project in the kernel community. There has been some, you know, part of the contribution of WireGuard included a bunch of refinements and basically a new crypto API implemented in the kernel. That's been kind of the biggest slow point is figuring out what the right abstractions are. How do we make that fit in the kernel that we already have? But I think the end goal is not only will we get a new really great VPN solution right in the kernel, but we'll have some nice crypto primitives that other applications, other kernel developers can then use. That is exciting. And just because it isn't in the mainline kernel yet, it doesn't mean you can't get your hands on WireGuard and play with it today. There's There are methods. Oh, yes, absolutely. So there's multiple user space implementations out there. Or if you're already using a Linux system... It's just a kernel module. Seriously, like there's PPAs, there's there's copper repos if you're if you're on a DNF-based system. It's not hard. The source is small. And that's one of the things people really like about WireGuard. It's small, it's lean, it's a fresh implementation. The author has some great presentations with some charts that show you just how much smaller it is. And part of that is a reduced scope, right? It, it's not an all-in-one VPN solution. It's not gonna magically make you this giant mesh network, but 
It's secure. It's easy to audit. It's been There's been some preliminary audits, and so far it looks really good. It's all modern, trusted crypto, and it really only uses algorithms that we know are good today. Yeah, and we're going to bring Jim back here in just a moment, and he'll talk to the speed of the thing, which is a bit of a game changer when you hear about some of that. So it's really checking all of the boxes for mobile broadcast production where we need to get back, get access to our mixer control and some of our hardware devices that were really never built to be controlled over the internet. They were only ever built for LAN control. But with internet connection speeds as good as they are, like when we're at the Linux Academy office, we can fully remotely control a lot of our hardware. And the actual dials in the studio move. Oh, it's a lot of fun to look at. It's really cool. But you need a fundamental connectivity. You can't just connect over a public IP to it. So we've been looking at implementing WireGuard. It's sort of a low level where our laptops would be connected back to the studio. And to that end... Wes recently gave it a go installing it on a Fedora system. And th- so here we go. Perfect example. Wasn't in the mainline kernel. Uh, how was the process of getting it installed and setting up a WireGuard server? Oh, it was super simple. You know, there's a PPA if you're on a Debian system, or there, there's various methods to go get it. You can compile the source if you need to. It's really it's really pretty lean. You know, it makes a small module. It's not that painful VirtualBox DKMS experience where you're waiting 10 minutes for your module to compile and causing all kinds of problems. No, True. It's, it's only 4,000 lines of code yeah, or whatever. It's, so it's, it's tiny and it's easy. And then it also comes with just a little bit of a user space helper program. There's ah. a couple things. There's the basic W wg command, and that has all the primitives that you might need. Um, and there's a wg-quick, which you can look at it, it's a small bash script. Like, you can just read it, you can modify it, you can fork it, do whatever you need to it. That handles some of the additional niceties that you might want if, you do, if you're used to a more full-featured VPN solution. So when you have this all installed and you have it configured, the sign of a successful connection is you all of a sudden have a new interface? And that's kind of one of the neat things, is it really integrates into the existing functionality. So, you know, the, the IP command, you go IP link, you add a new you add a new link type, and the type is just WireGuard. So ah. then you usually get, like, you'll start with probably WG0, and that'll be your first WireGuard interface. And then you sign, you know, so you, you do have to do some things like pick what IP address space you're going to use, right? Sure, so you'll probably yeah. assign just like a slash 24 or something. You can do smaller if you just have like two peers, but 24s are a pretty common size people are used to. So assign that, get your address set, you can bring it up. And then there's a couple WireGuard-specific things, but it's mm. really simple. It, it reminds me a lot of SSH because rather than like a really complicated TLS style, like if you've ever set up OpenVPN and you start using e- easy RSA and you're generating all these keys and you have yes. this complicated trust setup, yeah. <laughs> not so with WireGuard. So like you, like on, on your server, you go generate a private key, and then using that private key, you can generate a public key and go share that. You also need to know the endpoint that you're trying to connect to, so whatever your public IP address is for the droplet or whatever system that you're running. From there, you just use the WG command, and you say like, okay, well, I've got, here's the private key you should use, and then you know, here's the, the, you can tell it like what port to use to talk WireGuard on. And then you add things about the peers that you want. So you're like, okay, well, here's the peer I'm going to connect to, or here's all the peers I know that I want to connect to me. You can do things like say, like only allow those peers to connect from these IP address ranges. Then you provide the public key of those peers. After that, you're done. And you can do it all on the command line, or they have a pretty simple sort of like systemd-ish, ini-ish configuration file that you can use. And then you just say like, hey, WireGuard, use this configuration file for this WireGuard interface, you're done. The configuration, I did have a chance to go through it. I didn't set up a server, but I went through a config file, and it looked really straightforward. It's very easy to just read and understand, having never used WireGuard before. 
So you will still need to do a little bit of key exchange, right? You just can't, yeah, you can't, like you can't get around that. Those helper tools, though, to generate the public key for you make it a lot easier. It really is. You know, like you and I, we have a, if you have a secure chat channel with someone on right. whatever platform, we just exchange public keys just like we do with SSH or, or GPG or anything else that's modern crypto-based. And then I just have to know your IP address or whatever, you know, depending on your topology that you have. And then you just say, like, IP link up WG0. And, and you should be able to ping the other side. The reality is once this thing is mainline and uh, more and more people start using it, there will be probably even graphical tools built into desktop environments to make this really easy. Import the key, set up a connection, good to go. Yeah, right. I mean, probably there's lots of times where you can just have it you know, generate you a key automatically. Here's your user key for this workstation. Here's your public key. Copy it. Here you can easily share it with a QR code or whatever else. So the other thing that it seems to me is that with it being as low level as it is, is that WireGuard would be a really good candidate for persistent remote encrypted connections. And it works really well. The The way it detects connections is really very clever. And so you don't have to have this complicated setup. Like if you ever torn down and then reset up an open VPN connection, it takes a while, like 30 seconds sometimes. You have to struggle. You're like, oh, okay, is it going to connect it? With this, like, there's no failures. Once you've got your WireGuard interface up, just go send traffic. And that's where the magic happens. Once it hits the kernel, once it starts processing, it figures out based on those allowed IPs, like, okay, can I send to this based on this setup? And then it encrypts it and sends it over. And mm. if you've already got that tunnel established, like like today, I was I was doing some tests this morning, had it all working at my house, mm-hmm. drove up here to the studio. When I popped on the studio network, boom, pings right there. Really? No problem. So you change IPs? Yes, it's very good at roaming. So That's it's great. one of those perfect things where if you like, you have a trusted connection somewhere, not only if you wanted to get access to a LAN network, but if you just want to, you know, you're at the coffee shop, you just don't trust what's going on there, mm-hmm. WireGuard makes that very easy. You know, we've recently seen several attempts at mobile apps to support WireGuard. That must be one of the reasons why NordVPN, a, a commercial solution, is introducing WireGuard support for their VPN service. Uh, it's it's probably a great candidate for people that want to protect data on their mobile devices in transit. And, and the, the author has done a good job, too, of, of making that really Easy, easily available. There's work in progress, for example, on a kernel kernel support for FreeBSD, but in the meantime, you can just use the user space implementation, and that's a lot of the same stuff that's being used on, on the, the beta iOS app or the Android app or on any system that doesn't have a kernel module. All right, well, co-host of the show last week, Jim Salter, is also a writer over at Ars Technica, and he posted a nice, long, great in-depth review of WireGuard. He's pretty passionate about it. In fact, he's so passionate that you and him just sort of in a in a in a side hole just started talking about WireGuard and we thought, let's use that for the show. So we saved the clip and we're gonna play it for you this week. You wrote a great piece on it for ours. I'm wondering, you know, what what are your thoughts? Have you been using it in your personal life and and do you plan to? Uh, I have. I am in the process of switching over a pretty large open VPN mesh network. Uh, that I use for monitoring for client sites. I'm in the process of switching that largely over to WireGuard. I don't really trust the third-party Windows implementation uh, that's out there. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't really trust that, so I'm not going to be able to replace the OpenVPN connections on you know my Windows virtual machines. But uh, my infrastructure is all based on, you mentioned it earlier, Sanoid, uh, you know, my ZFS and KVM-based tool. And I want to be able to monitor all those Sanoid hosts, and those are all Linux boxes, so I can install WireGuard on those. And the the way things started out is I have, you know, outbound, I mentioned before, you know, the right way to do these things where you want connection across net is you push the connection out from inside and you connect to the data center, right? Well, I'm doing exactly that for my monitoring network. I've got Nagios and I've got an open VPN server out there in the cloud. 
And, you know, I've got a few hundred machines that I'm monitoring that all punch out of their networks through NAT. They initiate a connection to that open VPN server. And then from there, from a trusted network, I can monitor all of them. I can use Nagios. I can get shells on them if I want to do maintenance, you know, whatever. The thing is that it's it's been really aggravating to maintain because OpenVPN likes to just randomly crash or lock up the connection. And it's a giant pain. It just does that all the time. You can't have one up for more than like a, a couple days a week before that happens. Yeah. And despite the fact that, you know, there are, uh, you know, there, there are arguments in the OpenVPN configs that are supposed to deal with exactly this problem. You know, you've got keep alive ping, you've got, uh, you know, keep alive restarts that are supposed to automatically restart the tunnel if they don't, you know, receive pings after a certain amount of time. But, you know, the, the crap just doesn't work, even with all that in place. With a few hundred machines I'm monitoring, uh, you know, basically five to ten a week are dropping out and locking up, and I'm having to go through and, you know, basically grab them by the neck and shake them. I've written a whole bunch of, you know, my own external watchdog scripts to try to throw their own pings down the tunnel and deal with it uh, if the tunnel locks up. But, you know, sometimes OpenVPN actually crashes and the process is gone. Sometimes it just locks up and the process is there, but you can't get any data in and out of it. And uh, if you you would think that you just go, oh, well, you know, Etsy init.d, you know, OpenVPN restart. But sometimes the old process is still there and it will restart, but then you end up with two processes that are supposed to be doing the same tunnel. And then eventually you end up with 50. So I've had to go through and just the logic and trying to make my own watchdogs to deal with all this has just been a nightmare. Um, so far, I don't know if you could hear that. I just knocked on my desk there, knock on wood. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen any kind of flakiness or goofiness from WireGuard where an open VPN tunnel tends to establish within somewhere between like eight and 32 seconds uh, WireGuard tunnels establish in about 120 milliseconds. So basically, you know, by the time you're hitting enter from saying WG quick uh, up WG zero, basically by the time you've hit enter, it, it's it's pretty much connected right then. Wow, that's a great user experience. What do you what do you think of the the admin side? You know, because sometimes open open VPN once you're familiar, it's fine, but. I think it's it's kind of a hurdle for people. I'm wondering if, if WireGuard's going to be easier for, you know, competent people, but who are, are new to the VPN space. Well, so, you know, being honest here, it's still a VPN. It's still not really easy in an absolute sense. Mm-hmm. With that said, it is tremendously simpler than OpenVPN. Um, you know, I made the comparison to my Ars Technica article. When I first got started with OpenVPN, I knew that I needed to build a VPN and I had plenty of time to devote to it. And I spent pretty much a week, you know, doing nothing but burying myself in OpenVPN and setting things up and tearing them down and testing and figuring out what I needed to do. And at the end of basically a full-time week, I was able to do that. By contrast with WireGuard, I saw the email on the Linux kernel mailing list where Linus Torvald said, you know, can I just say I love WireGuard and I want to see it in the kernel soon? Right. I was like, okay, I need to sit down and play with this now. Well, that was on a Sunday afternoon, right? And uh, my wife was off at a uh, Mom's Demand Action rally, and I was alone with my three kids. I've got a you know a nine year old, an eight year old, and a five year old. So it was fair to say you you were probably a, a bit distracted at times. Yes, and I just said, I'm like, okay, let's get started playing with this. And at the end of that afternoon, you know, I don't remember, I, like four or five hours while I'm watching my three kids. I had not only managed to get WireGuard working, I had gotten three different configurations working, starting out from the simplest, I just want to make a connection and throw data over it, 
to, okay, now I want a working, you know, internet gateway with NAT and Masquerade where all my traffic will go out, you know, through the tunnel mm-hmm. over an untrusted network. And then finally to a more complex setup where I had multiple WireGuard NICs on the same machine with, you know, one as, you know, like a, an untrusted and one as a trusted and the untrusted weren't allowed to talk to each other or anything else the trusted network would be able to then, you know, bridge the two interfaces and go down and get a shell on any of the machines on the untrusted side, basically re-implementing, you know, my monitoring network that I described earlier. Well, I got all that done in a few hours while I was watching three kids. Wow. So that's a huge difference from OpenVPN. That is a great testament. And, you know, it's, it's nice to have that simplicity. I love the integration. You know, it feels very natural, especially on Linux. Now, you did mention a good point. There, there are various user land implementations that are official, but there's nothing for Windows yet. I I did see, though, the project says, in theory, that is in works, right? Yeah, Jason's working on it, and uh, it should be awesome once he finally gets it done. I'm not sure... I'm not sure where it sits in his priority list. I know he's a busy guy, and uh, he's doing an awful lot of stuff, but... The big thing that I'm really excited about for the uh, the Windows native WireGuard implementation is it's going to do away with the tap adapter. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. if you do OpenVPN on Windows, you know, use that Open Tap adapter. Right. And on top of OpenVPN's own bugs, the Windows Tap adapter is a nightmare. Uh, the OpenVPN dev community blames it on uh, DHCP bugs in Windows. But a lot of the time, the, the Open Tap adapter will not successfully get an IP address or it won't get one of the pushed uh, configurations like, you know, like a, a DNS server or whatever coming right. from the OpenVPN server. And you end up having to go through and you got to do stuff like you got to go to your network connections and find the tap adapter and right click it and disable it and then re-enable it and then start the VPN connection again. And then hopefully you'll get the IP address. It's a pain in the butt. That's annoying enough for, for you, a senior admin, but like then, then for, yeah. for clients, right? People are just trying to like, I'm just trying to connect so I can watch this presentation or get my yeah. work done. Yeah, they're, they're basically not going to do that. I mean, they need me for that. It's a pain in my butt because I got to go through and I got to do that for them. Because I mean, you know, the 20th time that you've been <laughs> through that, you might get somebody that's like, oh, well, let me go to, you know, start and start typing control panel and here comes control panel and go to, you know, uh, internet options and get from their network connections and local adapters and then find the tap adapter and then right click it and disable it and then right click it and re-enable it and then try. But I mean, that's a pretty advanced user and you've had to do that several times before they get that workflow in their head. I mean, I'm exhausted just just hearing you say all of that. I'm, I'm ready right? for a nap. But yeah, WireGuard will not use that. WireGuard is actually going to... Um, Windows has an API for VPNs and WireGuard, the... Uh, Jason Donenfeld's implementation of WireGuard for Windows is going to use the Windows VPN API, which means it will actually get a native Windows virtual network interface. And it means that you will manipulate, or at least you can manipulate WireGuard on Windows once that's done using the exact same interface that people are already familiar with for, uh, you know, corporate style VPNs, you know, the, the less secure PPTP right. and uh, L2P VPNs that are like built into Windows. Um, there are an awful lot of people that I, I personally don't find that interface very compelling, but there are a lot of people that already have that like drilled into their heads. They feel comfortable with it because it looks like Windows and right. they'll be able to use all of that with WireGuard and have actual native Windows virtual NICs that won't have this whole plague of extra bugs with them. So I'm pretty excited about that. So we should get better support. It should be easier. Hopefully it'll be a little more palatable to, to Windows admins who maybe, you know, not liked all that, the, the open tap stuff. 
hope, I mean, that maybe one day we'll actually have a future where, you know, people will run WireGuard in their, in their daily lives and it won't be a big deal. Hopefully so. In a way, there's, there's kind of a shelf life on all this stuff because the whole concept of a VPN is like, okay, I need to establish this encrypted tunnel to put all of this, you know, yucky, squishy traffic that I'm worried about somebody being able to man in the middle, right? But meanwhile, everybody's busy, you know, adding encryption to literally everything, you know, native in the protocol and in the connections between two devices. Like if you're doing, if you're doing HTTPS traffic and if you're already doing, uh, you know, TLS encrypted DNS queries, like there's not a whole lot of point in encapsulating that in a VPN, right? Don't get me wrong. It's, it's not like I'm saying we're, we're going to wake up tomorrow and not need VPNs because everything will always talk encrypted to anything else. But I think that's, that's going to be coming at some point. Yeah, we've seen some moves, right? Like um, what was Google's effort beyond Corp, where you know, services that they provide are more designed to, to know that they exist on the internet, that there's authentication stuff built in instead of the old school enterprise model of everyone on the internal network is trusted and you can VPN in and then everything on the outside is untrusted. Yeah, and just we've learned anytime you've got you know, plain text traffic, you've got a serious problem. And you start out thinking, oh, well, you know, I can trust anybody inside my building. Well, really? What about when your building has, you know, 10,000 people in it and you don't know who's on the Wi-Fi? It, it gets to be, it, it's a lot easier just to make sure that everything is, you know, encrypted with its own, you know, point-to-point connection to begin with. And like I said, we're, we're already seeing that shift to everything. We're seeing more and more things running over HTTPS. We're seeing, you know, uh, SMTP connections running over TLS, you name it. DNS is a big one that we're, we're slowly working on, slowly. Slowly getting there. And, you know, that bridges over into, uh, I sometimes end up evaluating devices in the consumer space that promise to protect your home network by, you know, shielding you from the connections that your device might make to, you know, a malware site or a phishing site or whatever. And, you know, I always kind of have to bite my tongue because, you know, I'm looking over these things and some of them are okay. Uh, Some of them are, are a very valuable additional layer. None of them are a magic bullet. If anybody says, throw away your antivirus, this router's got you covered, uh, you know, hide your wallet. But again, there's a shelf life on all this because basically once DNS is encrypted always and by default, there's not much left that a router in the middle that you trust can do for you. You know, that's a really great point. Once we slowly lift encryption, apply it to everything, actually have secure implementations on top of, of, of the internet, once all of our connections and standards are using that, well, that, that'll be a better world and we can be a little less paranoid, not totally unparanoid, but we, you know, we'll know we have that baked in. We don't have to add an additional layer for ourselves. Well, yes and no. There's pros and cons. Because like I said, I mean, the good thing is all your traffic's encrypted and you don't have to worry about a man in the middle. The bad thing is, you know, you've got a house that's full of, you know, we fast forward to when DNS is encrypted by default. We give that at least five years and more likely 10, right? Well, a typical household has already frequently got 20 plus internet connected devices, yeah, wired or Wi-Fi, you know, internet of things, you know, your set top box, you know, that you get your, uh, you know, your Netflix, your Hulu or whatever through your computers, your phones, your tablets, you know, sometimes now, yeah, I mean, drones, you name it, there's all kinds of stuff. That's only going to be even more the case in five or 10 years. Once we imagine that DNS is probably going to be encrypted point to point straight between the device and, you know, whatever it's trying to connect to on the other end, right? Well, once everything is connected, now if you, as the person 
who, whether you like it or not, you're in the role of saying, I'm the network admin for this house full of 20, 50, 100 devices. I want to make sure they all stay safe. (laughs) Well, you can't because you're the man in the middle. And that man in the middle can't do anything because each one of those devices, you know, it's it's the god of its own little realm. Yep, that's a, that's a great point, right? Like when you're when you hard code your own DNS, that's one example you see a lot with with devices these days. You, you can't you can't change that. Even if you push a DHCP option, well, it's never going to respect it. So you're out of luck. And you're that's a, that's a really good point because as we see more of this, well, they're just, they're they're going to do it on their own, and you won't have any control. Yeah. And, you know, when your malware site is just sitting somewhere on Google Cloud and it may not even have a static IP address, you know, it, it basically comes from wherever it happens to be hosting that service, you know, on an app engine right now. <laughs> right. It's going to get really hard to filter that kind of thing. And if you don't have access to the DNS, uh, then you don't really have any way as a trusted man in the middle to, to shield other devices from that. Now you're having to trust each one of those devices individually to do sane and smart things. And you've, you've kind of shifted yourself into an entirely new problem space. Thank you for going to techsnap.systems slash contact to send us your questions, feedback, and of course, those war stories just like Cody did. Yeah, Cody writes in, he says, Hi, Chris and Wes. I know you guys don't normally cover networking topics, but I think your TechSnap listeners might like this. Well, hold on. Hold on. Yeah, we gotta, I think we have to question that a little. <laughs> I mean, I think we cover networking topics quite a bit, to be honest with you. Like, I don't, I mean, I, I hate to disagree with somebody who took the time to write us, but. It is it, right there in the snap. It's part of the snap. Perhaps, perhaps we should just do more. I think that's maybe, what Cody's maybe, trying to yeah. tell us. He says, uh, but hopefully I can pass on a few links that will make networking more accessible to people wanting to learn. First of all, that's awesome. Uh, labs.networkingreliability.engineering is one. And anti.project.readthedocs.io is the other. We will throw links to these in the show notes, don't worry. Uh, For those that are looking for orchestration, if you didn't come across Stackstorm, then I would recommend checking it out on GitHub and their integration packs. Written in Python, and it can run scripts of any sort to return data to perform the next job, which is super handy. So think about that for a second. It can retrieve information, store it, and then pass that information on to the next job. That is great. And then it also has a built-in UI for interaction. And he has links to that, and he says, happy automations to all. Well, thank you, Cody. Great links. We'll try to toss those in the show notes at techsnap.system slash 390. Really, thank you, Cody. These are all great links, and I hadn't heard of any of these. NRE Labs is this really neat little online interactive place you can go just play around if you, you know, especially when you're learning networking, it can be hard to know how to set everything you need to get a lab going that you can actually play around with because you haven't learned it yet. Hopefully this goes a long way to fixing that. Also, I think it's Antidote Project, although I like Antidot. Oh, you're right. Oh my gosh. You know, Overall, I thought I did pretty good on that email, but I definitely thought I was getting a little into the weeds when I was reading the URLs. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) And that one looks fun, too, because it teaches from scratch network automation skills for network reliability engineers. Mm, Cool. And and then also, I think we would be interested in his other suggestion, which was StackStorm. Yeah. And if we were a little bit bigger, this looks like hugging on steroids. Oh. Like if you've got a complicated CI system, you've got multiple asynchronous inputs and events that you want to have, Stackstorm looks like the way to go. 
you might have just heard Mr. Payne name drop Huggin, which is probably actually not pronounced that. It's Hugin, what was it? Yeah, I think so. But we've decided we just like hugs over here. This is a really cool system that you might look into to have anything that you want essentially be event-driven, like an automation script or a process, uh, some file transfers, some maybe renaming. There's all kinds of things. Think of your own if this, then that self-hosted service on your LAN. We did a full breakdown of what we're using it for at Jupiter Broadcasting in Linux Unplugged 274. If you want to watch that episode or listen to it and then get a sense of how you could use it, it's pretty powerful. And it's not intimidating either. It's got quite a bit of capabilities, quite a bit of flexibility, but it's not going to scare you away. Check out linuxunplugged.com slash 274. That was a great find. It was a great find. And thank you, yeah, to Cody for sending in your emails. Thanks to everybody out there for going to techsnap.system slash contact and sending in, I'm going to say, war stories. Yeah, we love war stories. It's a great time. Let's do the war stories. You know, now, now if, you're, if you're spending any time with family or just yeah. taking some time off, reflect on those dark times and share that. It's it's always cathartic. I wonder if there is anything with a uh, Thanksgiving theme, like a war story with like a Turkey Day theme to it. That would go to the top. Yeah, those of the worst list. times you got called, you got paid yeah. right in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner. We would love to hear about it. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. But before we go, some final thoughts. You almost sound a little resigned, like you're not ready to go yet. I'm not. I'm, there's too much good stuff to talk about. Yeah, in fact, a note on that point, we are approaching the holiday season, and Wes and I also have some more travel coming up. We will attempt to not miss a week, but it may happen. So never fear. Just go to techsnap.system slash subscribe. If we miss a week or two, we're not gone. We're just in the middle of holidays and travel, but also as we begin to approach episode 400... It's a big time for the program. We're beginning to consider some creative improvements. The TechSnap program was built, engineered, grown during a time when the network was advertiser-funded. But the reality is that's no longer the case. We now have Linux Academy that is completely funding our operation. And so there's certain things that we built into the show to accommodate advertisers that we no longer need to do. And we also want to take some of that funding we have with Linux Academy to even increase the quality of the content that we put into the show, expand the scope of it. You may have seen we've been working to that end already. Some of these things that have been happening while I've been traveling are experiments in that direction. Wes, you've been doing great. Well, thank you, sir. And uh, it's for me now. Oh, near 400 episodes, it's a big moment of reflection because I still remember doing episode one and <laughs> just all of the things at that time that we thought we'd be doing with the show and where it's at now. It's a completely different entity, but some of those same original elements are still in the show and they're not going anywhere. So while we have a few things in mind, we, we're going to respect that heritage. We're going to we're going to keep you informed as we do that. We'll use this time of travel and whatnot to kind of work out our plans and all of that. So if we are gone, if we miss a few episodes, don't worry. We're working on things behind the scenes. And you can always grab every episode that gets published by going to techsnap.systems slash subscribe. You know, and, and that's it. Like the 
to, to me, TechSnap is the place where you can go to, you know, to get complicated technical stories explained really well. And if you just want a rundown of the news, well, go to Linux Action News. You know, there's a whole bunch of other great podcasts out there. And I think the space for TechSnap is to just be the best explanation. And sometimes that takes a little longer. That's true. Now, why don't we leave them with a few cool tools that uh, we came across during our prep for this week's episode that didn't really fit at the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so as we said, WireGuard's not magic. It won't do everything that you want, but it is a really good, secure building block. And it is really amenable to automation because it doesn't try to do too much. It's not super complicated sure. to use. It's not a big graphical application. So I thought we'd, we'd include a little things if you want to go start playing with it, but maybe you don't want to roll everything yourself. One aspect of WireGuard that's really great is just just point-to-point links, right? That's at its core what it does. And so that's where I saw WireGuard Private Networking, which is just a, a simple little Ansible role to deploy a fast, secure, and provider-agnostic private network between servers. Hmm. And actually, I saw this over because, you know, some people are using using some hosts that don't have private networking, encrypted networking between the various machines that you might spin up on their platform, this lets you use WireGuard to do that. Oh, fascinating. Oh, my gosh. I had not even thought of that. That has a lot of potential. It really does. Yeah, so this script that we'll have linked in the show notes is, I think, primarily focused for either Debian or Ubuntu. But it under the surface, it's really just using some of the essentials in systemd. So even if you're on a CentOS box or something, you could probably take a look at this and see what it's doing. Okay, and in that same vein, there's also Algo VPN, which is really like it's a similar project. It's another set of Ansible scripts, but it is much more full featured and aimed less at you know building your own private infrastructure and more at just rolling out a custom VPN solution for you. Yeah, and it has some nice helper scripts in there to add or remove users or set up local DNS resolving. You can set up some limited SSH users for handling certain types of traffic. So it's got things to make it easier. And this also loads on things like DigitalOcean, Amazon EC2, Azure, Google Cloud. Um, So it's pretty flexible in that regard. While we're hoping WireGuard just gets everywhere, for the moment, it's not. And Algo also sets up IPsec, which has handy native integrations in just about every commercial operating system out there. And not only that, if you've ever used IPsec, you know that it can take a little bit to get everything right. Like, oh, how do I do key exchange and which version and what cipher should I use? Algo's made good, modern, safe, strong choices for you. So you can just, you know, obviously audit it, check it, but their defaults are good. Yeah, it's at least a good place to start. I think your advice to check whenever you're doing something like this in a real production situation, you got to check it yourself. But this is a great starting point and um, linked up techsnap.system slash 390. I'm just going through the installation right now. It's actually not even that complicated. It's really easy to get going. Nice finds, Mr. West. Nice finds. You know, these will probably be things, I'm thinking Algo in particular, that we may deploy for ourselves over on the Jupiter Broadcasting mm-hmm. Network. So might just expect to hear more about that. Or, again, just, just let us know. Because sometimes the tools our audience finds are some of the most helpful things that we ever end up using. So if you've been playing with WireGuard or any other VPN technology and you have your favorite tools, let us know. All right, well, let's get out of here. But first, I will mention the Twitter handles. I am at Chris LAS. He is at Wes Payne. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. 